I've always lived my life by a certain moral code. Decent, honest, upstanding. A few regrets, not a lot. But now I wonder. Things don't look the same. What had always seemed harmless and insignificant now carries a certain contempt or a stench or a stain. I don't know how I didn't see it in the past. So I decided to change. Live a life of honor, dignity, substance. Work harder, be a more agreeable person. Find value in other people, add value to this world. But whatever I did seemed incomplete and temporary. My change wasn't of substance, it was superficial. And then it hit me. What I was trying to do was impossible. Humans can do amazing things, but one thing we cannot do with all of our wisdom and experience and ingenuity is to truly change. Change at the depths of our soul. Sheer will and a commitment to improving our lives might be noble, but in reality it's just a facade. Is a clean slate possible? Is it? Is a clean, clean slate even possible? Is it possible to have a fresh start? Is it possible to experience a life that is free from guilt and free from the agonizing feeling that you're just not good enough? Is it? I believe that it is. I think there are a lot of people walking around in this world, people that we know, people that we see, people that we talk to, people that we work with, people that we know, who carry a lot of guilt, a lot of I'm not good enough-itis, a lot of heaviness and weight of this idea that I'm just not good enough. Oh, they'll put on a good act. They'll put on a good face. You know, they'll go out and they'll party. They'll have a, a wonderful time. Life is, you know, just fine and ducky. But in reality... Something gnaws at them in the middle of the night when they can't sleep, thinking, there's got to be more than this. And I'm just not good enough. I just don't think I'm good enough. I feel so guilty. I feel so burdened. I feel like the burdens of life are weighing me down. Is a fresh start, is a clean slate even possible? They want to be free from guilt. They want to be free from addictions and habits and behaviors, but they don't know where to start. Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Where do we start? We're going to talk about getting a, a fresh start with God. We're going to talk about the biblical plan of salvation. We just celebrated Christmas a couple days ago. pray that you all had a very merry Christmas. I know I did. It was wonderful. And this sermon, while not a traditional Christmas sermon, is the same sermon that I preach at the end of every year. The last Sunday of the year that I preach, I preach this sermon. Uh, as we move into another year, I think it's good to get a fresh start and good to hear these things again. If you've heard the sermon before, which if you've been here the last two years, you've heard this sermon or a similar facsimile. Uh, if you've heard the sermon before, or if you're already a Christian, if you've already accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've heard the sermon before, you may be thinking, well, cool, I can check out for the next 25 minutes. Great. 
I, I encourage you not to do that, but rather take some notes so that if you get the opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus, if you get the opportunity to tell them what it takes to become a Christian, you'll be prepared. You'll say, hey, I just heard a sermon on this. Someone may come up to you and say, what is so different about you? Well, why do you have this aura about you? Why do you have this joy about you? What is different about you? You can say, it's because I got Jesus. And Jesus has me. Well, how do you get Jesus? Let me tell you. I just heard a sermon on this. Like I said, this is not a traditional Christmas sermon, even though we just celebrated Christmas. But the reason that Christ was born so, was so that we could be free. That we could be forgiven. We could be free from sin and guilt. We could be saved. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, an angel appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He will, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. Jesus was born to save people. That's why he, was, that's why he came. And now, I, like I said, I know this sermon won't apply to everybody here, but I think we can all learn from it. So this morning, we're going to talk about what I believe the Bible says is the plan of salvation. It's what I was taught growing up. I'm sure it's what's been taught in here at, here at uh, Griffith First Christian Church for many, 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 many years. We're going to start with faith, and we'll end up at baptism. And I hope and pray that you will hear this message with an open heart and an open mind, for it was written in love. The first step in the process of salvation is believing, or faith. The Bible says that without faith it is impossible to please God. A favorite verse of many is this one, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. We know it, we've heard it a million times. Some guy in a rainbow-colored Afro wig holds it up at a football game. You know, John 3.16, you know what I'm talking about. Mark 16, 16, you may not know this one, but Mark 16, 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Ephesians 2, 8 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. God's wonderful grace is applied to us when we have faith in Jesus Christ and when we accept his offer of salvation made on the cross of Calvary. Galatians 2.16 says that one is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.9 says that the goal of our faith is the salvation of our souls. Faith is absolutely essential to salvation. You cannot be saved without faith in Jesus Christ. Faith always comes first in the biblical plan of salvation. But what are we to believe? What do we have to believe in order to be saved? You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, Jesus was on trial, and the high priest said to him, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus replied by saying, Yes, it is as you say. Jesus is the Son of God. In Matthew 16, 16, Jesus asked his disciples who they thought that he was. Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the basis of the confession of faith that we use here at First Christian Church. When you repeat after me a confession of faith, or repeat after somebody or a confession of faith, when you confess your faith, you say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's my Lord and Savior. Jesus is the Son of God. Not only do we have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but you have to believe that Jesus died for your sins. Jesus 
took the punishment that our sins deserve when he died on the cross. Think about that for a minute. All right. I have two brothers and a sister. And when we were growing up, it was every man or girl for himself. You know, if somebody got it, if someone was in trouble, there was no stepping up and saying, it's okay, spank me instead. No, 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 no. No, it was, it was ears against the, the, the door. Oh, he's going to get it. Oh, he's going to get it. Oh, yeah. You know, there was no way that we were going to take the punishment for the, for the other one. But that's what Jesus did. When he died on the cross, he said, I will take your punishment for you. You deserve the scourge. You deserve the whip. You deserve the nails. You deserve the spear. You deserve the crown of thorns. You deserve to die. But I'll do it in your place. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He took our punishment. He took our place. He took our sins. And when he died on that cross, our sins died with him. That's what salvation is all about. That's what we have to believe. We have to believe that Jesus took the punishment that our sins deserve. In Romans 6.23, Paul wrote that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of, etern- the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the only way to be saved. We need to believe that Jesus is the only way to be, be saved. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said in Acts 4, 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we can be saved. Jesus is the only name we can call on to be saved. You can't be saved by having faith in Muhammad. You can't be saved by having faith in Abraham. You can't be saved by having faith in Buddha, in Confucius, in Moses, or yourself. Simply believing in something does not save you. You can only be saved by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I know that it is not politically correct to be so exclusive when it comes to salvation. Many people believe that there are many roads that lead to God. I like what Pastor Greg Laurie said. He said, yes, there are many roads that lead to God. In fact, all roads lead to God. But only one road leads to heaven. You see, every road, whatever you believe in, whatever philosophy, whatever religion, whatever your trust and faith is in, will lead you to God's throne of judgment. Every road will lead you to God's throne of judgment. But only one road, only one way, only one path will lead you to heaven. And that is through Jesus Christ. It's the narrow road. The Bible says that there is only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ alone. You have to start with faith. After you have believed in and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then comes the second step in the plan of salvation. You must repent from your sins. Matthew says that Jesus, after he was baptized, began to preach. And he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. In Acts 2, Peter preached a very powerful sermon on Jesus to those who were gathered for the Feast of Pentecost. The people were cut to the heart and believed in Jesus and asked, What must we do to be saved? Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In Acts 17.30, Paul said that God commands men everywhere to repent. But what does it mean to repent? What is repentance? It means to have a change of mind. It means, in this context, to have a complete change of mind. Instead of living for yourself, instead of living to please yourself, you want to live for Jesus and you want to live to please God. It is a complete 180 from where you are now. This is the direction of the self. 
This is the way that I am going. This is the way that every human being at some point in their lives is going. I'm walking. I'm living. I'm living for myself. To repent is to say, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for God. And I turn around and I change. And it starts in the mind. It starts in the heart. And I start walking towards, I start living for God. That is repentance. It means to completely turn away from sin and a sinful lifestyle and to live for Jesus. There was a medical study done in 2006 that showed just how hard it is to change. It's about people who had open heart surgery. And they had uh, a bypass surgery. Roughly 600,000 people have heart bypasses a year in America. 600,000 heart bypasses a year. And they are told that they must change their lifestyle. After open heart bypass surgery, they need to change their lifestyle. It's a temporary fix. And they must change their diet. They must quit smoking. They must quit drinking. They must exercise and reduce stress. In essence, the doctors are saying you must change or die. You would think that a near-death experience would forever grab the attention of the patients. You would think that they would vote for change. You would think that the argument for change is so compelling that they would uh, make the appropriate lifestyle op, uh, alterations. And sadly, that is not the case. 90% of heart patients do not change. 90%. That's 540, well, over 500,000. Of the 660,000, I can't do math. Over the 660,000, over 90% of them will not change. They remain the same, living the status quo. Study after study indicates that two years after heart surgery, the patients have not altered their lifestyles. Instead of making changes for life, they choose death. Change is that difficult. The majority of heart patients choose not to change. They act as if they would rather die. Becoming a Christian is like having heart surgery of another kind. The old self with the old sinful heart is more than just bypassed. In Ezekiel 36:26, God made a promise concerning the future. Through Jesus, God was going to do something amazing. God was going to do something wonderful. Through Jesus, he said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That is awesome. God performs heart surgery on everyone who becomes a Christian. That cold heart of stone full of sin and wickedness and evil is replaced by a beating, life-giving heart of flesh and vitality. It requires repentance. It requires that we change, and not just change once, but change daily. That's what repentance is all about. It's about making up your mind that we will no longer live a sinful life, but instead we will live a life that seeks to please God. It's making up your mind and saying, today I will be different. Today I will change. Today I will live for Jesus. Today I will take up my cross, deny myself, and follow him. We decide in our minds that we want to live for God and not against God. And then as the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out, the outward changes happen as well. Repentance is about change, a change of mind and a change of behavior. That's the second step in the biblical plan of salvation. The third thing we do is confess. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. I talked about it earlier, but Peter's confession of faith in Matthew 16, 
16, sometimes called the Good Confession. Peter said in response to Jesus' question about what the disciples believed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He confessed his faith. You know what the word confess means? Literally, it means to agree with. It means when you confess your faith, you're just agreeing with the truth. You are agreeing with God that Jesus is the Son of God. You are agreeing that Jesus is the only way to be saved. You, you are basically telling the truth when you confess. You're not coming upon some great, incredible revelation, some uh, amazing epiphany. You are merely stating the truth, the actual truth. When you say that Jesus Christ is God's Son, you are confirming, you are agreeing with God that that is the truth. That is what to confess means. Peter's good confession in Matthew 16 is the basis of the confession that we use here. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's my Lord and Savior. You acknowledge that Jesus is God's Son. You accept Him as Savior and Lord. You accept His gift of salvation made available to us on the cross of Calvary by God's grace. You accept Him as, as Lord. You know, it's not good enough to say, Jesus, save me from my sins. There has to be a change. There has to be a difference that that makes. When I say that Jesus died for me, when I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, I have to believe that not only is he going to save me, but he wants to be my Lord as well. He wants to be the king of my life because that is who he is. He is the king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is to be the Lord of my heart. To Lord over something means to rule over something. To say that Jesus is my Lord means that he is going to reign in my heart, that he is going to reign in my life. Not thunder showers, but reign in a kingly way. He is going to rule over me. That Jesus is going to guide me. Jesus is going to lead me. Jesus is going to change me. Jesus is going to direct me. I am not my own. I was bought with a, with a price. I am not my own. Jesus died for me, and he wants to be my Lord. And you know what the cool thing about Jesus being the Lord of my life is? Jesus knows the way. In fact, John fourteen six says that Jesus is the way. That if I want to know which way to go, if I want to know uh, where I'm going, if I want to know how to get there, all i got to do is follow Jesus. And if I make him the Lord of my life, then I am following him. But if I just say, well, he's my savior, then there's no change. Thanks, Jesus, for saving me. Now I'm going to go play with my toys. Thanks, Jesus, for doing that for me. I'm going to go do my thing, whatever I want. No, Jesus says, if you want me to be your savior, I've got to be your Lord. I've got to be your Lord. I have to have control. I have to be in charge. I have to rule, and I have to reign in your heart means no more Sean. It's all about Christ. That's what it means for him to be the Lord of my life. Public confession is so very important. Matthew 10:32 again. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. We have to believe in Jesus Christ. We have to repent and turn away from our sinful lives. We have to publicly confess him, our faith and our belief in him. The final step in the biblical plan of salvation is, anybody? Baptism. In every instance, okay, we're a New Testament church. We are a church that believes that 
the book of Acts is kind of like our example. The book of Acts is our example for how to do church. The book of Acts is, uh, was a bunch of guys, the disciples, leading the early church. It was the formation of the early church. These guys, full of the Holy Spirit, making decisions and, and, and leading the church. And that is our guide. We follow the book of Acts as far as how we do things. In every instance, in every single instance in the book of Acts, when anyone comes to faith, every time someone comes to faith in Christ, the first thing they do is they get baptized. In every instance in the book of Acts, when someone comes to saving faith, faith always comes first, and it is always followed by baptism. In Acts 2.38, Let me give you some examples. The people believed, and Peter commanded them to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Philip preached in Samaria in Acts 8, and the people believed and were then baptized. Even Simon the sorcerer believed and then was baptized. In Acts 8.36, Philip preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and after he believed, he was baptized by Philip. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible. All right, you got this Ethiopian eunuch. He's in his chariot. He's an official for the queen of Ethiopia. He's uh, got his Bible He's got his Old Testament. He's reading from Isaiah, and he doesn't understand what he's reading. Philip comes up to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone explains it to me? The Bible then says that Philip preached the gospel to him. Philip preached the gospel. The next words out of the Ethiopian eunuch's mouth are, look, there's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized right now? The Bible does not say that Philip told him he needed to be baptized. It just says that he told him he explained to him the gospel he told him the gospel do you know what that means that means in the first century these holy spirit inspired holy spirit filled christian disciples that these apostles that these disciples of jesus when they told somebody the gospel when they explained the gospel that means baptism was a part of it see a lot of churches these days say you know baptism's not necessary baptism's not important it's it's optional it's the first act of obedience after you become a christian It's the first act of obedience after you accept the gospel, after you hear the good news. Well, in the first century church, apparently, when Philip, this uh, early Christian, when he explained the gospel, baptism was a part of it. It was not an optional add-on. You know, maybe you use, if you use the internet, uh, you use uh, Mozilla Firefox, and they have all these add-ons, things that you can add on. You know what I'm talking about, Brandon. Yeah. They have add-ons. They're not necessary. You don't actually need them to be able to use the browser, to be able to surf the Internet. They got them for Google Chrome. They got them for, well, they don't have for Google Chrome. They have them for Firefox. They had them for Internet Explorer. And so you can add them on, and they make, you know, surfing the Internet more fun or more functional or things like that. But it's an add-on. It's not option. It's optional. It's not necessary to be able to surf the internet. You can use plain old Firefox or plain old Internet Explorer and still get to the same internet. But you use the add-ons, and it makes things kind of cool. It does different things, and and uh, but they're totally optional. Baptism in the first century, baptism in the Book of Acts is not an add-on. It is not an optional part of the plan of salvation. It never was. It was a necessary part. You couldn't be saved without being baptized in the first century. In Acts chapter 9, Saul the persecutor became a believer in Jesus, and he was immediately baptized. In Acts 10, Peter preached to the Gentiles of Cornelius' household, and after they believed, they were immediately baptized. In Acts 16, Paul preached the good news of Jesus Christ to Lydia and her household in Philippi. They received the message, and then they were 
They were baptized. In Acts 18, Paul preached in Corinth, and the people believed and were baptized. Faith always comes first, and then baptism follows faith. You know what's fascinating about the story of Paul? Paul was, uh, he came to faith, and he was preached to, the, the, he was, the gospel was preached to him by Ananias, and Ananias told him, what are you waiting for? Get up and wash your sins away, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. In Scripture, it tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Philip, uh, Ananias told Paul that w- when he got baptized, what he was doing was calling on the name of the Lord. He was calling on the name of the Lord when he got baptized. Get up, wash your sins away, calling on the name of the Lord. Huh. Faith always comes first. The biblical plan of salvation requires that faith come first, and then baptism follows faith. The biblical plan of salvation includes baptism. It is not an option. Like I said, a lot of churches teach it that it's just an optional part of the Christian experience. I do not believe that it is optional. I believe that it is absolutely necessary. The Bible talks about baptism so much, and it is very apparent to me that it is so very, very important. Paul wrote in Romans 6 that something wonderful happens. When we are baptized, we are being baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. The believer's baptism is a uniting with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. i got a friend who lives in Minnesota. His name is Byron Black. He used to be the preacher at Hebron. And he says, he asks the question, if, you, uh, if we are saved by the blood of Jesus, where do we come into contact with his blood? It's in his death. That's where he shed his blood, was in his death. How are we united with him in his death? Romans 6 says we're united with his death, and we're united with him in his death when we are baptized. That's what happens when we're baptized. Another question I have about baptism uh, and, and whether or not it's optional uh, goes with Galatians and what Galatians says about how we are clothed with Christ. We talk about how when, when we stand before God and, and at his judgment throne, when we stand before God and we're going to be judged, that, Jesus, that God is not going to see Sean, he is going to see Jesus because I am clothed with Christ. Galatians says that it is when I am baptized that I am clothed with Christ. That's how I get clothed with Christ. That's how God sees me. God will see me. He will not see me, I mean. God will... I don't know what I mean. God will not see Sean. When God judges me, he will see Jesus. Well, how can he see Jesus if I'm not clothed with Christ? How do I get clothed with Christ? I get clothed with Christ in baptism. I believe that baptism is essential. The believer's baptism, like I said, is uniting with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why I believe that immersion is the only kind of baptism that the Bible knows. The Greek word that is translated baptized literally means to immerse. There's a Greek word for sprinkle. There's a Greek word for pour. The only one used for baptism is, is the word translated as immersion. That's why we do immersion here on Sunday morning. There was an old drunk walking down the street, and he saw a preacher baptizing people in the, in the lake. And he goes over to the, to the, to the lake, and uh, the preacher says to him, Sir, are you ready to be baptized? Are you ready to find Jesus? The drunk looks back and says, Yes, preacher, I sure I am. Apparently he was from the south. Um, yes, preacher, I sure am. The minister then dunked him under the water and brought him right back up and says, Have you found Jesus? The drunk says, No, I didn't. Preacher takes him and dunks him back under, holds him for a few more seconds, pulls him back up. Have you found Jesus yet, sinner? No, I haven't. Minister takes him, dunks him back under the water, holds him under for 30 seconds. The drunk is sitting there flailing away. Pulls him back up. Have you found Jesus now? 
Are you sure this is where he fell in? He completely missed the point. He didn't understand why he was being dunked in the water. And that's like being baptized without faith. If you don't have faith, then you are just getting wet. If you don't have faith in Jesus and you go to get baptized, you are just taking a bath. There's nothing magical about this water. Okay, the water in this, in this baptistry here, there's nothing magical about it. It's good old Griffith, Indiana tap water, highly chlorinated for your protection and taste. It is God's grace. It is God's grace applied to your faith in Jesus Christ that is expressed in baptism that saves you. Baptism is not a work. Someone, some people say, no, baptism can't save you. It's a work. Baptism is not a work. If it was a work, it's something you could do. Baptism is not something you can do. Baptism is something that is done to you. It is an act of submission. It is an act of obedience. Jesus commanded his disciples to go into the entire world and teach the world about him and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus commanded that this happen. Jesus commanded you and me and everyone else to be baptized, going to all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He commanded us to baptize, which means he basically commands everyone to be baptized. And if Jesus commands everyone to be baptized, then what part of that is optional? What part of obeying Christ is optional for a Christian? What part of obeying Christ is optional for any of us? Are there any of his commands that we can go, eh, I don't think so. No, that one's not... Uh, that one I don't have to follow. That one I don't have to obey. And here's my other question when it comes to obedience and, baptiz- and baptism is if baptism saves you, as Peter wrote uh, in 1 Peter 3, and if baptism saves you, as, and, and, and if our sins are forgiven in baptism, as Peter said in Acts 2.38, if our sins are forgiven in baptism and we are never baptized, we look at it as optional and it's, it's not important, if we're not baptized, and baptism does, and we, our sins are forgiven in baptism, then can the sin of not obeying Christ in baptism be forgiven? Scary stuff. Uh, I, honestly, it's, it's scary stuff. On the day of Pentecost, when the people were cut to the heart, and they believed, and they asked, what must we do? What must we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is essential to the plan of salvation. Absolutely essential. Is a clean slate possible? Is a clean slate even possible? That's the question. Is, can we have a fresh start? Can we get a fresh start with God? Can the guilt and the sin and the shame and all the ugliness of our lives, can it be washed away? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is when we come to faith in Christ and we turn away from sin and turn to God. It is when we confess and agree with God that Jesus is his son and that Jesus died for our sins and that he took the punishment that we so deserve It is when we are baptized that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that our sins are washed away and we begin to live a new life. And all that filth, the shame, the guilt, the dirt of sin 
is washed away. And we receive a promise, a wonderful, wonderful promise. Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. We are clothed with Christ. We are saved. We are free. We are forgiven. And we have the promise of everlasting life. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for those today who may be making decisions about their eternal destination. I pray for those who may be trying to figure all this out, trying to understand exactly what it is that you would have them to do. God, I pray that through this sermon, through your word, that you would impact them. That you would let them know that it, it is not the time to wait. That God, through your word and through your Holy Spirit, that you would weigh heavy on our hearts. For those of us who are Christians, God, I pray that you would give us an opportunity. Give us a chance. Give us an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus this week. That we might tell somebody the good news and how they can be free and how they can be forgiven. Thank you, God, for this chance to open your word and to talk about the plan of salvation. I pray for those who've never accepted Christ and pray that today might be the day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.